How's it going, everybody? Doing all right? Why don't you stand up and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, Father God, we love you. And we ask for your presence to be known here in this place, Lord. We ask that you would you would teach us and you would talk to us and be with us this morning. And it wouldn't just be about information, Lord, but it would be about some sort of real exchange of life and living. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you guys know we've been doing this series. We started a series this summer in Genesis. Um, sort of did a, did a survey of Genesis, and we enjoyed that so much we decided to continue it through the Old Testament, and sort of our sort of loose idea was to kind of land around the birth of Jesus around Christmas time, so we're, we're getting dangerously close to the end of this series. And um, obviously we can't get to everything because there's a lot in the Bible. You know, more than anything, what I really hope is that we would just have inspired you um, to want to dig in. And, um, it's really interesting. This series has actually really inspired me and really reawakened my love for the scripture. Um, and so I hope it's done that for you as well. I think what we're going to do is, um, lead up to the birth of Christ. And then after the birth of Christ, we're going to start in Matthew and work our way through the book of Matthew next year, hopefully, um, leading into Easter. Uh, anyway, I think that's exciting. All right. So um, today, I'm talking about uh, King David, probably the most famous person in the Bible next to Jesus himself. And uh, man, there's a lot to talk about with David. Do we have our little graphic? All right, there we go. Our graphic is graphic today. Have you noticed how graphic our graphic is? If you see the, you know, the head here sort of dangling <laughs> we have a graphic graphic today, right? And so what I'm going to do is uh, open up here by sort of recapping the famous story of David and Goliath. Has anyone not heard that story before? It's kind of, it's kind of um, one of the most um, known stories in all human history. Um, so much so that we use it today when we talk about a large entity versus a small entity. We talk about the David and Goliath, right? So I was going to read it to you, but it's actually a lot more than uh, I remembered. It's a lot of words here, so I'm just going to kind of recap and then jump in. Is that cool? Plus, I think you all know the story, right? You do. You know it. So David's this young guy. He's a shepherd. And um, his older brothers are fighting uh, in the army with King Saul. And King Saul is terrified because this Philistine army has come against them and he's not sure how they're going to win. And so everyone is afraid to make the first move because they know once things get started, it's going to be really bloody and both sides are going to lose a lot of people. And so both sides are really, really afraid. Um, and also Saul has also sort of fallen out of favor with the Lord, so he's extra afraid. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, so David is, uh, David's dad um, sends some food to his brothers, and so David leaves his post as, as the shepherd and goes out to the battlefront to deliver this food to his brothers. When he gets there, he, he sees what's happening, and what's happening is that the Philistines have decided to send this giant out, right? this really, really tall, strong guy. 
um, this nasty warrior type guy out to intimidate the Israelites. And he's saying, hey, we can settle this the old fashioned way. Just send one person out to fight me. If he wins, then you guys win. If I win, then we win. Right. And this is happening day after day. And nobody wants to go out and fight uh, Goliath, the Philistine, right? So David is delivering the food and David sees what's going on. This really, really bothers David because he wonders how is, how are we afraid of this one person? You know, and so he decides, no one is willing to fight. So he decides that he's going to fight the giant. So he goes to Saul and talks to King Saul and convinces King Saul to send him in. Now, this is really interesting if you think about it. So number one, how does David know the king? Well, so David was a musician, and the king fell out of favor with the Lord and had this tormenting spirit, and David would come play music for him, and the tormenting spirit would go away. So David and Saul were kind of friends. I feel like that's probably how David could just walk into the tent with Saul and say, hey, I'm going to uh, go fight the giant. But what in the world was King? Saul thinking none of his seasoned warriors (laughs) were willing to fight the giant but then this young guy comes in and I feel like David was 17 18 years old maybe at the time he wasn't a little boy like in the movies you know but he wasn't like you know full-grown man just yet he's sort of in that you know late teen stage I think um, if I remember correctly and so King Saul is willing to send David into the battle I don't know what Saul is thinking. Um, I guess he's, you know, I wonder if he thought for a moment that he's not going to hear the music anymore. Um, I don't know. But, but Saul, so what Saul did was Saul agreed to let David go fight Goliath. And um, so first thing that Saul did was put some armor on David because David wasn't a warrior yet. He didn't have his own armor. So Saul put his own armor on David and it was clunky and David couldn't move around very well. So David decided, no, tell you what, I'll go without your armor because your armor is too heavy for me. And so David, of course, goes out to the battle. He picks up some stones and he has a sling. And of course, he, as the story goes, he sends a rock at Goliath, hits him right in the head. Goliath falls down. He picks up Goliath's sword and he cuts off Goliath's head, right? And he wins the battle. Obviously, the Philistines aren't happy because that didn't go the way they expected it to go. And there's still a war and still a lot of people died. But um, Israel, the people of Israel won the battle that day, right? You guys know that story, right? Awesome story. Um, we tell it to the kids. It's something you hear since you're young. It's one of the most famous stories of all time. All right. Um, we're going to get back to David in a second, but I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction here. I want to talk for a second about the Bible, which is what the series is about, is inspiring passion for reading the Scripture. Um, the Bible is a collection of stories about people. It is. Most of the Bible, and you read the Bible, you can't find one page that doesn't mention people, a person, or some body, right? It is a collection of stories about people. The Bible is about people. It raises, raises two questions for me. One question is why I have a cold, guys, so if I sniffle, I'm really sorry, okay? So I'm just going to, I'm so sorry. I'm trying hard not to do that. Um, but no, it raises a couple of questions for me. Number one, if the Bible is considered the word of God, why would God use stories to convey stories about people to convey his heart? Scripture is called the written word of God. Why would God's words be mostly stories about people? 
And my second question may actually offer a little bit of light to the answer to the first question. The second question is this. Why are we so obsessed with stories? Why do we binge on Netflix? Why do we spend money at the movies? Why do we read novels? Why do we love gossip? Why do we love drama? Why are our earliest memories often books that our parents read to us? Why do we love history? Why do we love the lyrics to our favorite songs, which most of them are about people and drama? Why are people obsessed with Instagram? Right? As we are, as far as I can tell, what the human creature is most fascinated with outside of self-preservation is drama and story, the lives of other people. We are obsessed with the lives of other people. And you notice that once you kind of get beyond your self-preservation, how much time we spend in the lives of other people, right? Maybe this in and of itself gives us a window into the type of person God is. Maybe this speaks to the nature of God. The word of God is mostly stories about people, history, parables, poetry, letters written from one person to another person. Then how does God feel about people? What does this say about our path to spiritual transformation? I personally think people overestimate the power of doctrine and theology to transform and underestimate the power of a story. I'm not saying doctrine and theology are not important. But the power of living life alongside other people, both dead and alive. The power of living life alongside other people, both dead and alive. I read this, um, Eugene Peterson, um, he's one of my favorite theologians. He, um, he translated the Message Bible and he's written many, many uh, wonderful books. I read an interview with him the other day and he said something that really um, stuck out to me. Um, he said, one of the reasons that the Psalms have been so important to me and that I've spent so much of my time reading and praying them along with other great poetic piece in the Bible you know, the revelation of John, is that they constantly train me in listening to the rhythms and getting into the nuances so that I'm not just reading for information or entertainment or inspiration. At least half of the Bible is written in poetry. Why don't Christians immerse themselves more in poetry so that we can learn how language works? We live in a culture where very few poets get attention. Language is related to information for getting things done, but the Christian life, the spiritual life, is not about information or getting things done. It's about living. I want to live. I want to find out how. I want encouragement to live. I need companions in living. I want to say that again. But the Christian life, the spiritual life, is not about information or getting things done. The Christian life, is the spiritual life, is not about information or getting things done. It's about living. I want to live. I want to find out how. I want encouragement to live. I need companions in living. And when we immerse ourselves in these stories, we can, in very real ways, find ourselves alongside companions for living. We can have fellowship with these people, and our lives can be enriched and better lived because of it. So the Bible isn't just a list of like spiritual policies. If you do this, and this will happen. This is what you ought to do. There is some of that, and I'm not throwing that out. But a lot of what the Bible is, is seeing the stories of other people and finding our story in their stories and walking alongside these people as though they were our companions, right? Having fellowship with these people. 
transforms us. The Bible is about people, their stories, and not just the Instagram version of their stories. The Bible includes the good, the bad, the ugly. It's not whitewashed, airbrushed, touched up, filtered, or sanitized. It's complex, complicated, and messy. Because our lives are also complex, complicated, and messy. And this should be encouraging, not discouraging. David's story is an incredibly complex life in terms of the mixture of good and evil, faithfulness and adultery, loyalty and murder. David's story is an incredibly complex life in terms of mixture of good and evil, faithfulness and adultery, loyalty and murder. So when I was young, I always read uh, and saw David as the story of the conquering hero. You know, on, a, on Halloween, when we went to the Hallelujah Night over at St. Giles, I would always dress up as David, right? I would always dress up as David. And I remember being in this play as a kid, um, and I remember threatening to quit the play if I wasn't cast as the part of King David, and I wasn't cast, and I didn't quit. I ended up playing a clown. <laughs> As you see, has led me here today. <clears throat> we all love the underdog story and David's rise to prominence. We all like the winner. And David, from the stories we hover around on, in Sunday school, looks like the greatest winner. We love the powerful, charmed people, and David seemed to be that guy. The kind of person, you know, who's the captain of the football team, the top of the class, the big CEO, the black belt and kicking butt, the guy, the ladies like, the number one shot caller. David is often positioned as the classic hero archetype that everybody loves. That everybody loves. But later in life, I see something a little different. I see a much more nuanced story. And frankly, in some ways, if you look at the life of David and the kings, you get a picture that very much resembles that of Pharaoh at times. Almost as though the people of Israel have come all the way to erect another Egypt around themselves right inside the promised land. And you see some severe character issues in David's life. David is a murderer and an adulterer. At times he made really bad decisions for the country that resulted in massive unnecessary casualties. And it would be easy for me to stand up here today and speak about how David was the picture of the wrong way to be king. You know, especially in this era where the abuse of power has become such a daily topic of conversation. But at the time... David was also anointed by God. He was loved by God, known as a man after God's own heart. Also, David received some of the greatest promises that anyone in the Bible ever received. So it's really easy to, to preach this one way or the other. And there's a lot of temptation to want to preach and teach this story about David on this side or this side. And I honestly, just to be totally honest with you, struggled with this for the last two weeks because I, I didn't know which way to teach David. On one side, he's like this anointed man of God, and I love all the pictures that we have of like the king who loves God and does the righteous thing and who wins the battles and defeats the enemies. That's so attractive to me. But then also when you see Jesus as our picture of a true king, he's almost in some ways the antithesis to who David was. He's almost the anti-David if you really want to look at it. 
Because David won by killing the enemies and Jesus won by dying for his enemies. You see this like upside down world, right? But it's not that easy. So I could teach that side like I could teach the David the conquering hero side. That's really easy and really exciting and really fun to do because we love the hero archetype and David fits that so well, right? That's really easy to preach that one, right? But it's also really hard for me to preach that one right now in this day and age, right? Because of the violence in David's life, you can't just pass over that. And you can't just go there. But so I could easily get on this other side and preach David the the bad guy. Anyone seen the Lego Batman movie? Okay, I'm going to spoil this for you. But I love it when Batman goes to the Phantom Zone, the place where he's cast all the bad guys, right? As, I guess it's Superman actually casts all the bad guys there, and that's where they all are, and they actually trick Batman, and he ends up in the Phantom Zone, and all the bad guys end up getting away. Well, when he enters the Phantom Zone, he's like scanned. I guess all the bad guys walk in, and there's this thing. I can't remember who the voice is, but she's like a famous actress who's really funny, and she like um, scans him. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not supposed to be here. She's like, what are you talking about? Of course, she's like, you're a bad guy. Of course you're supposed to be here. And Batman goes, no, 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 I'm not a bad guy. And she's like, well, hang on. And she scans his life and she shows all these things that Batman did. And she goes, well, you're not a traditional bad guy, but you're not exactly a good guy either. And of course, you know, um, Batman has to um, see his life laid before him and the fact that he's not the great guy that he thought that he was, right? I kind of feel that with King David. I'm like, he's not a traditional bad guy, but he's not exactly a good guy. And I could preach either one of those sides. And I had a revelation last night. Preach them both. Why? Why is it so important to preach them both? Because, especially in this day and age, especially in this day and age, sorry, I lost my place in my notes here. Especially in this day and age, we need to learn how to see people better. So I drive my kids to school in the morning, and they go to school up on the north side of town, and there's this corner where we always pass, where there's these three guys, these three young guys who stand out there waiting for the bus, and I see them every morning, I guess they probably have to wear uniforms, I feel like they're always wearing khaki pants, and they're standing out there, and we drove by that corner one morning, it's really, really cold, and one of those boys was standing there, and I knew it was him, because he's still wearing his khaki pants, I recognize his clothes, and you know, he just because you see him every day, but he's, it's really, really cold, he's wearing a ski mask, right? He's got to pull down, he's got the eyes and the mouth, and she goes, Dad, I saw a bad guy. <laughs> Dad, I mean, I mean serious as cancer, Dad, I saw a bad guy. And it made me laugh so hard. Made me laugh so hard because my kids have separated the whole world into two categories, good guys and bad guys. We were watching Star Wars the other night and I'm trying to explain to baby girl like what's going on and what's happening. She said, so it's because he's a bad guy. I was like, well, kind of. 
see a bad guy? I was like, no, he's a good guy. I was like, why did he kill him? Ah, you know. <laughs> this is the funny but sad thing is we are still all pretty much set up that way. This like super binary way of thinking. As part of me wants to stand up here and say, David was a good guy, the greatest. And part of me wants to stand up here and say, David was a bad guy. But the Lord's not going to allow me to say that because I do not believe God sees people in binary terms. I don't think he sees good guys and bad guys. He doesn't see naughty or nice. He doesn't see us and them. He doesn't see Jew or Greek. He doesn't see conservatives and liberals. He sees complex stories and nuanced lives and people desperately longing for connection and redemption on multiple levels at multiple stages of life. And this is probably the greatest work that will ever be done in your life. To learn how to see people. To learn how to see people. And you know, no one likes to hear this. And I don't like that this is true, but this is reality. This is the gift of suffering and hardship. You can allow suffering and hardship to make you hard, or you can allow it to make you soft, sensitive, and aware. You can allow it to make you cynical, or you can allow it to grant you the gift of empathy. Empathy is the most beautiful thing. I've been through some hard things in my life. Not any harder than anything anyone here has gone through, but I've been through some hard things too. But I wouldn't trade them because it's taught me how to have empathy. They've taught me and are teaching me still how to see people better. For instance, when the guy used to cut me off in traffic, it's always a guy for some reason, but... When the guy used to cut me off in traffic, my first thought was, he is a terrible person. If he wrecked right now, I wouldn't stop. Right? I hate him. He, he was born terrible. He grew up terrible. And he's always been terrible. And I hate him. That's how I used to think. And I'm not going to lie. I still think that way sometimes. But you know what happens more often now to me? The guy cuts me off and I'm like, I'm so mad. What was he thinking? And the first thought is, what if his mama just died? What if he found out his wife was cheating on him? What if his child is in the hospital? Why do we first leap to, he's a terrible person? Maybe he was abused as a child. Right? Why do we never think of those things? I just don't believe that people are always born messed up. I think almost every abuser was abused. And everyone who ever hurts anyone else is not hurting them. They're hurting the people who hurt them in the beginning, right? I, this really bugged me the other day, and I don't know if this is totally relevant or if this is going to make me sound crazy, but someone, there was an article about Charles Manson. You know, Charles Manson died recently, and he's the famous cult leader who killed a bunch of people in 
super wicked guy, right? And someone, I guess it was his grandson, posted something about the things that he liked and how he actually was a normal person. Now he had compassion and things and loved nature and stuff. And people just got online and just absolutely went to town, right? And here's what bothered me about that. Charles Manson was a terrible guy. But when you demonize someone, you cut off God's ability to show you that you are exactly the same. Had you gone through what Charles Manson went through, maybe you would be a killer too. And if you don't believe that, I'm just saying things are way more nuanced and complicated than we want to admit. And we like to believe that there are those people. Serial killer even, right? Oh, they're over there. That's not me. We are not connected. You don't like to admit that there's only degrees between you and them, right? We don't like to admit that. But the problem is we get, we, when we cannot see that we could become something just the same, we open up ourselves to becoming that exact thing. And I could prove it up here right now and it would be really uncomfortable. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But where Jesus says, you who judge, don't you do the same? I could literally, never mind. I'm not saying this to be right. So you have a choice in your life to allow hardship to make you hard and bitter and cynical or allow it to make you soft, kind, and empathetic. By the way, there's not a lot of joy in cynicism, but empathy is a source of a lot of joy. Not weakness. Not weakness. It's actually a lot of strength. But I'm convinced this is exactly why we have stories like David's in the Bible. In almost every aspect of your life today, you're being asked to choose sides and to demonize the person on the other side of the line. And it's very easy to pick a side and start throwing stones. But this isn't the gospel or anything close to it. The hard work of the Christian disciple is to hold these things in tension and call a spade a spade without demonizing the person. You can't turn the tables over and cleanse the temple unless you're willing to bleed and die for the very same people that you drove out of the temple. God does not see us in binary fashion, and we need to learn to see one another in a more nuanced light. This is the very, this is a very Jesus-worthy pursuit, possibly the most worthy pursuit. All right? So let's recap for just a minute. So in the beginning, God creates the world. In this world, he places a garden and a special group of creatures he made to protect, nurture, and care for his creation. These creatures were made in the expression of God and were to represent his interests in the earth. These living expressions of God or creatures created in the image of God were people, male and female. And the destiny of the world was tied up with them. These people fell into a grave mistrust with the Creator and decided to pursue their own their desires by their own means. This sin resulted in a disconnection from the source of their life. They fell into chaos, and the rest of creation fell into chaos along with them. This began a slow walk back to restoration, connection, and wholeness, which is the great story arc of the Bible. This is also our story. The Bible gives us context for our own walk home on the road to redemption. On this road, we meet a man named Abraham. God calls Abraham and his wife Sarah to become innovators in a new way of living. 
God promises to bless the whole world and reshape humanity through Abraham's children and his new way of living. This new way of life is the life of faith, and faith would be the road home. And Abraham's children would fill the earth with faith, though not without many detours and great mistakes along the way. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Israel had many children who, through a series of events, moved their families to Egypt. Over the years, they grew to a large nation of people and became intimidating to the Egyptians. So out of fear, they were forced into slavery. And after many years, God called a man named Moses to deliver his people. And they set out on a 40-year journey to a land God had promised them. They fought and settled this promised land, and for many years they weren't governed by a specific ruler or system, but in theory, by God himself. Still, in times of crisis, God would call a woman or a man to rise up and lead the people. These were known as the judges, and this was the age of the judges, and that's what we've just finished talking about in this series, right? Samuel was the last of these judges. He would be the one to usher in the age of the kings, though he was hesitant to do so. Here is a dialogue that he and God had over the nation's desire for a king. It's in 1 Samuel 8. Sorry for the long recap, but we've taken a long ride. And I feel like I had to recap as we're getting towards the end of the series. And I think the context is really cool. Right? This is 8.10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, vineyards and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's how Samuel felt about the age of the kings. God was not very stoked about kings, but God is awesome. And God takes these situations and he works them together for our good. And he gave us a really good king eventually. He gave us Jesus. But that's how Samuel and God felt about the kings. God was not excited to give the people a king, but he told Samuel to do it anyway because it was what the people wanted. That is scary. Sometimes the Lord will give you what you want, even though it's not what's best for you. Thus began the age of the kings. The first king of Israel was a man named Saul. Saul was tall, handsome, charismatic, and classic king material. And God chose him, but Saul feared the people and desired their love above the approval of God. So after a couple political decisions, God decided to reject him as king and find a new one. He would be a man. He would find a man after his own heart. And this is where the story of David begins. So God rejects Saul. And he sends Samuel out to find a new king. He sends Samuel to the house of a man named Jesse. And Samuel tells Jesse to bring all of his young men out, all of his boys, his sons, 
out, and Samuel's going to go through to each one and ask the Lord which one of these men is supposed to be the king. So Samuel goes down this long list. He looks them in the eye. He looks them over, and each time Samuel thinks, this is the guy, and the Lord says, no, this is not it. And he goes to the next one, and the Lord says, this is not him. He goes to the next one and says, this is not him. He goes to the end of the line, and God said, this is not him. And of course, Samuel is confused because God told him that the king would be one of Jesse's sons, and Jesse brought all his sons out, and God's saying that none of them are it. So Samuel says, do you have any more sons? Do you have anyone else? And Jesse goes, yeah, there's... The, this really young one, but he's not here because he's, I've got him out on, out on the fields. But I didn't really think that he, you know, is, I, I don't really think he's king material. I don't know if you're really going to want to see him. You know, Jesse's a little embarrassed of David. And Samuel says, bring him, bring him anyway, because I've gone through the list and these are not it. None of these guys are it, right? And so David comes out and Samuel says, you are the guy. He anoints David as a king, right? He anoints David as the king. And here is the beautiful, beautiful thing about it, right? Actually, I'm not going to say that just yet. I'm going to hang on. All right, let's talk about some facts about David. We've just intro David. Let's talk about some facts. I know some of this is boring, but, you know, because we're going over history and doing a survey, I just want to give you guys as much information as I can, right? All right, number one, we know more about David than any other person in Scripture, including Jesus, because we have David's whole life, and Jesus, we only have three, you know, years, kind of snippets of Jesus' life. But we actually know more about David than any other person in the Bible. Jesus is described as the son of David, so there's an explicit connection made between their lives. David was the grandson of Ruth, of the book of Ruth, um, that Andy spoke about last week. Is that last week or the week before? Last week. As Andy also said, Ruth was a Moabite, which means she was not necessarily welcome in fact, because uh, his grandmother was a Moabite, David was uh, an outsider who by law was not even allowed to go to church. David would have been considered some kind of at least partially foreign person. He was not, necess- he was not welcome with the general um, group. He was an outsider in that sense. You know, David was the youngest son of Jesse, and he seemed to be the least favorite There seemed to be some evidence that David may have been born illegitimately. Uh, Number one, his dad didn't call him when Samuel asked to see all his sons. You wonder if maybe he's like, well, he's not really a full son. He's kind of a son. It doesn't say that there. But also in David's Psalms, he's quoted as singing, I was conceived in iniquity, or in iniquity I was conceived. This would also, if this was true, this would also make it illegal for David to go to church or be part of the body of believers. This would make David even more of an outsider. David was a musician. That automatically makes him an outsider. <sighs> But he was so good that King Saul hired him to play when the tormenting spirit came upon him. David wrote most of the Psalms, by the way. At least 73 are explicitly credited to him. David rose from obscurity to become the most powerful king in the history of Israel. He might have been the last person to unite all 12 tribes under one man's leadership. Uh, David, at his peak, might have been the most wealthiest person in the world. Uh, David is the most revered and celebrated man in the Old Testament. People in Jesus' age would have considered the Davidic era to be the glory days. 
And it's fully what they were expecting things to look like when Jesus came to power, though it didn't work out that way. And that was a problem for a whole lot of people. There's a lot I could say about that. But David rose uh, rose to power from obscurity, but it was no King Arthur situation. He didn't pull a sword from a stone and end up on the throne overnight. It was a long, hard journey filled with years of tragedy and pain that led him to the throne and followed him afterwards. David was known as being the man after God's own heart. David's greatest desire was to build a house for God, but he could not because his hands, as Samuel said, were too, as Solomon said, were too bloody. Let's talk about David's early life a little bit. So David was an outsider. His grandmother was uh, forbidden blood. He might have been born illegitimately. He probably couldn't go to church, and it seems like his family didn't want him around. Maybe this is why he created his own church out in the field. Can you imagine what it was like when Samuel came to anoint him, and then he had to turn right back around and go deal with the sheep? Have you ever felt like this? It seems like all of a sudden everything is going to change for you, and then you wake up right back in the middle of the boring, normal, same situation. Has anyone ever felt that way before? One problem I tend to have with modern church life is this gravitation towards sensationalism. On one side, you have big production, lights and sound. On the other side, though, you have vision, signs, and wonders. And I'm okay with all these things in general, but there's a problem for me when they're used to fill the seats. And here's my problem. Most of what we call spiritual transformation doesn't happen in the loud noises and the bright lights, or even in the signs and wonders. 99% of spiritual transformation happens in the quiet hours of everyday existence. Spiritual transformation happens in the quiet hours of everyday existence. I have a friend who is a signs and wonders guy, by the way, who says it like this. He said, I'll trade a signs and wonders for good emotional health any day. And for David, like for us, what happens on a day doesn't matter as what happens every day. David didn't slay the giant on the battlefield. He slayed the giant in the sheep field day after day after day after day. Because what David did on the day of greatness was technically no different than what he did every other day. Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite writers, wrote a book called David and Goliath about this principle. And he talks about how, um, he says, talks about slinging, about a slingshot, right? Um, Slinging took an extraordinary amount of skill and practice, but in experienced hands, the sling was a devastating weapon. Paintings from the medieval medieval times show slingers hitting birds in mid-flight. Irish slingers were said to be able to hit a coin from as far away as they could see it. And in the Old Testament book of Judges, slingers are described as being accurate within a hair's breadth. An experienced slinger could kill or seriously injure a target at a distance of up to 200 yards. The Romans even had a special set of tongs made just to remove stones that had been embedded in some poor soldier's body by a sling. Imagine standing in front of a major league baseball pitcher as he aims a baseball at your head. That's what facing a slinger was like. Only what was being thrown was not a ball of cork and leather, but a solid rock. 
The historian, I can't pronounce his name, argues that the sling was of such importance in ancient warfare that the three kinds of warriors balanced one another, like each gesture in a game of, game of rock, paper, scissors. With their long pikes and armor, infantry could stand up to cavalry. Cavalry, in turn, defeat projectile warriors because the horses moved too quickly, quickly for artillery to take proper aim. And projectile warriors were deadly against infantry because the big lumbering soldiers weighed down with armor was the sitting duck for the slinger who was launching projectiles from 100 yards away. This is why the Athenian expedition to Sicily failed in the some big war. <laughs> Goliath is heavy infantry. He thinks that he is going to be engaged in a duel with another heavy heavy infantryman in the same manner as Titus. Anyway, he's totally quoting other things in other parts of the book. When he says, come to me that I may give your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, the key phrase is come to me. He means come right up to me that we can fight at close quarters. When Saul tries to dress David in armor, and give him a sword. He's operating under the assumption, the same assumption. He assumes David is going to fight Goliath hand to hand. David, however, has no intention of honoring the rituals of single combat. When he tells Saul that he has killed bears and lions as a shepherd, he does, he does so not just as testimony to his courage, but to make another point as well, that he intends to fight Goliath the same way he has learned to fight wild animals as a projectile warrior there's a point to this it's not just interesting there's a point to this David looked like the underdog but he actually was favored to win the fight if you understood the situation David beat Goliath with humility and skill that he had proven over many years What David did on the battlefield was, from a technical standpoint, no different than what he'd been doing every day of his life. The only difference was who happened to be on the other end of that rock and who happened to be watching. It's usually the same for us. Our giants don't usually fall overnight. We don't usually erupt into a moment and do something we've never done before. We don't spontaneously become a superhero and conquer our enemies out of a fit of passion. Nope. We usually defeat them over time in quiet devotion of everyday life. This is not a sexy message, but I promise this will help you if you take it to heart. Nobody likes this message. But this message actually has more... This particular part of this message has more of a potential to change your life than almost anything else you will hear. Here's another interesting thing to think about. David's isolation as a child would once again make him into who God had called him to be. I'm sure he hated so many of those days and nights alone in the field dodging sheep poo. But he also had all the time in the world he needed to sling stones. I bet he spent hours doing it just out of boredom. I mean, I would. That's what I would do. Throwing rocks. Throwing rocks. It's the same for us. The very thing in your life that you hate is often the very thing God is using to prepare you for the day of greatness. And if you will embrace it instead of avoiding it, it will transform you. You see this throughout the Bible over and over again. 
If you will embrace the thing that you are afraid of, it will transform you into something greater than who you are. I want to talk a minute about David's hard rise to power. His difficult rise to power. After David killed Goliath, he was rewarded heavily. His life seemed to change overnight. Power, money, and fame. He married a princess, Saul's daughter, right? But his life was far from a fairy tale, and his journey to the throne was very hard. David went from sleeping in the fields with the sheep, right? To sleeping in the palace with the princess, his new wife, right? And within a short period of time... He ended up sleeping alone in a cave. So you see, David gets anointed. Life seems awesome. Then he goes back to working with the sheep. I don't know how much longer he worked with the sheep. That hard to, had to be difficult. Okay, so then David goes and he wins this battle and, you know, he's famous and he's rewarded and he marries the princess. He goes lives in the palace, right? And then before he knows it, before he knows it, uh, he's, Saul tries to kill him, and he has to run away. And he's the outcast. And Saul gives his wife away to another man, and he's living on the run, and he's sleeping in caves. And he never thought about what it was like for David on those nights. Lying in a cold ditch in the dark, some kind of cold, dark cave, knowing that the only father figure he had hated him and wants to kill him. Knowing that there's a chance he might not wake up because his enemies are looking for him. Knowing that if he goes to sleep, he may never open his eyes again. At the same time, knowing that his wife is sleeping in another man's bed because the king gave her away. How would you deal with this? How would you deal with this? How would you not lose your mind? Can you imagine the anxiety sleeping on the, on the cold ground in a dark cave, knowing that this was your life, and not long before that, you had been in the palace, you had been celebrated and loved, and now you are the least of the least. Not only are you the least, you're not just homeless, you're homeless and the most powerful man in the world wants to kill you and is actively looking for you. And your wife is gone. She's sleeping in another man's house because she's married to another man. I can imagine David trying to go to sleep. I can imagine David trying to deal with the anxiety and the heartache. Night after night after night. I can imagine David trying to go to sleep with his eyes closed, trying to avoid the thoughts that pass through his mind. Maybe saying something like this, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's laying in the gravel, in the dirt, but the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Can you just hear him singing himself to sleep? And here's... What you can take away from this. 
You can be blessed, favored, anointed. You can be a person after God's own heart. You can be brave and loyal and still end up sleeping in the valley of the shadow. David was suffering, not because of sin, but actually because he was righteous, because he was anointed, because he was a man after God's own heart, because he was blessed, favored, loyal, and brave. He was suffering, not because of his sin at this moment. And this is important because it's very easy when you look at your life and your situation to be tempted to say, I'm not blessed. I'm not anointed. I'm not a person after God's own heart. But I promise whatever it is you're going through that that is not the case. And we don't like this message and we don't like this idea. But when you are talking yourself to sleep at night, and when you are laying down in the vallow, vallow of the shaddy, <laughs> you can think about the fellowship you have with David. And whether you make it out of the shadow or not, you can close your eyes and you can raise your hand and say, I am blessed, I'm anointed, I'm favored, I'm loved, I am brave, I am loyal, I am righteous. Because a gospel that tells you that that will not happen is not the accurate gospel. And Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but be joyful because I've overcome the world. And there's so much more. It's getting later and later here. And there's so much more I could say about David. I can say about David. David, uh, his greatest desire was to build a temple for the Lord. And um, he told the prophet Nathan, I'm going to build a temple. And prophet Nathan said, you should do whatever's in your heart because the Lord has blessed you. And um, then Nathan had a dream that night and came back and said, no, you can't do it. It's not yours to build. It's not yours to build, right? Um And Solomon said, you know, it was in my David, my father David's heart to build a house for the Lord. But he couldn't build the Lord because the Lord said he was a man of war. He had blood on his hands. And this is where I'm preaching both sides of King David. Is that the one thing David wanted more than anything else, after he'd accomplished everything he accomplished, he couldn't have. Because, as you may have heard before, the kingdom... That comes, the way a kingdom comes is a kingdom. I'm I'm saying this wrong. The way a kingdom comes is the kingdom that comes, right? If your kingdom comes through violence, then your kingdom is a kingdom of violence. If your kingdom comes through war, then your kingdom is a kingdom of war. If your kingdom comes through lies, then your kingdom is a kingdom of lies. If your kingdom comes through manipulation and control, then your kingdom is a kingdom of manipulation. I have a good friend who's a really great preacher. He's a really, really great preacher. And he's he's famous too. And he's got a lot of famous friends. And my friend really loves to preach. And he says he's got friends who don't really like to preach anymore. And he says that blows his mind. He says because, he says, 
don't we understand by now that the reward for being good at something means you get to do more of it? Your reward for getting good at something means you get to do more of it. His point is, if you get good at, he's like, if you get good at preaching, don't you know you, your, your reward is you get to preach more. If you didn't love it, you should have gotten good at something else. But it's the same in this idea of the kingdom. Is David wanted to build a house for the Lord the way he had built his own house. And the Lord said, no, sir, David. My house will not be built with your blood money. He says, but I tell you what, David, I love you so much. I will build you a house, my friend. And a son will come from you who will sit on the throne forever. So for all David's issues, for all his character problems, his adultery and his bloodlust and his murdering and his warmongering, for all that stuff, for the mistakes he made. You know, there's several, there's a time in here where David makes mistakes so big that thousands of his people die for no reason at all. You don't hear that one as often as the David and Goliath story. But for all that, God said, you know what, David, I love you so much. You can't build me a house, but I'll build a house for you. And when we celebrate Christmas, what we are celebrating in one sense is the fulfillment of a promise that God gave to this man, David. And if we want to throw him out because of his adultery, if we want to throw him out because of his warring, if we want to throw him out because of his, some of his insecurity, too bad. Because God has not thrown him out. And God will not throw you out. And not only will he not throw you out because of your mistakes, he will take your mistakes. He will take your sin. He will take the worst things you've ever done, the worst things that have ever happened to you. And he will not just forget them, as the metaphor goes. He will actually turn them in and twist them around to something beautiful that will be worked for your benefit. The way God forgets sins is he retools them. Everyone, I think if you know anything about David, you know his greatest, one of his greatest failures was his adultery. But it was not just regular adultery, because the king these days had all kinds of adultery. That was no big deal, right? I mean, it's just the way it was. I'm not saying it was good. The king did whatever he wanted, right? But here's what David did. He saw one of his closest friend's wives and liked her so much. He slept with her. She got pregnant, and he tried to trick his friend into coming home from war and sleeping with his own wife so that she, the child would appear to be his. But the man said, how can I sleep with my wife when I'm supposed to be fighting for you, sir? That's how loyal he was to David, right? And you know how David rewarded him for his loyalty? He sent him out to battle and told, he told his army to let this man run out first and then stop so that he would be killed. He set up a plan so that the man would die. So he murdered his best friend because he was in love with his wife, right? And he was judged heavily for that. And I think it's really important that the story of David does not mean that leaders can just get away with doing terrible things. The story of David does not say that it's okay 
Because David was judged. And David had to be called out for his sins. And he suffered and the people suffered because of his lack of character. Right? It's not a pass. And he suffered for that. But here's the beautiful thing. That woman gave birth to another son named Solomon. And Solomon went on to be king. And way, 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 way down the line, Jesus came from that bloodline. Jesus came from the affair. So I promise, whatever's going on in your life, God has a conspiracy to use it for your good. Doesn't mean it won't hurt. <laughs> and if, if I take anything away from the David's, David's life, it's this. Is that God has conspired for your good. There's a lot more I could say about it. And there's some major things I left out because my dad is going to be preaching on David again next week. I don't want to steal his thunder. He has a pretty amazing um, couple of things to talk about. So I think I'm pretty much done. You guys want to pray? Well, I feel like I went longer than I did. It's not even noon yet. Are you for real? It's 1225. I've been watching this clock that says it's 11.55. I was like, man, I feel like I'm going long. I was like extending this. I got to give people their money's worth. It's only like 11.40. All right, well, thanks for not walking out on me, ladies and gentlemen. Let's stand up and pray real quick. <laughs> Wow, okay, solid. I do. Thank you, Lord, that you've conspired for our goodness, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you don't let us get away with stuff. That's hard to say, but God, thank you so much that you love us so much. Lord Jesus, and teach us how to love the good things. We don't want to desire things and ask you for things that you're going to give us that aren't good for us, Lord. Just because you know the state of our heart, Lord. We ask that we would, uh, you would, you would, Crack our hearts open and deal with those places before we allow ourselves to be ruled by things that you have not put in our lives, Lord Jesus. We ask that nothing would rule us but you, that we would not have judges, prophets, or kings other than you in our life, Lord Jesus. We ask that nothing, no need, no identity issue, no lack, no... Um, relational problem, no anxiety. We ask that we would be ruled by nothing but you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you so much for all the things that you've done for us to show us how much you love us. And uh, we bless you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Wow, that was so good. Thank you. Um, we do have ministry teams today. If you would like prayer, uh, the people we train will be glad to pray for you. If you have a health problem or if you need even prophetic ministry or some kind of encouragement. So if that's you and you would like prayer, if you will come up over here on this side of the auditorium, we'll be glad to pray for you. Um, football's gotten a bad rap lately, but I still want the Panthers to win today.
So, Lord, help the Panthers. Amen. All right. God bless you guys and gals. Ladies and gentlemen, see you again soon. Have a great week.